now an opportunity for his first NHL goal. Andrew Miller against Corey Lettman. Miller scores! And there it is! So it was about 5.08 on Friday when uh, Danny O'Regan scored an overtime goal to uh, end my brother's college hockey career and the season of Yale hockey. And I'll tell you what, it was a great game. I was really, really happy to be there. It was a, a wonderfully played game, a mostly a wonderfully rough game. There's only one call I thought was pretty... Pretty atrocious, but it didn't cost anybody anything, so there's almost no reason to even worry about it. Uh, And uh, when the goal went in, there was a little bit of sadness. I think uh, it was nothing like Harvard. Um, A couple weeks ago, obviously, they lost in overtime as well. I think we talked about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, double overtime that time. And uh, there was a feeling that night that was different. I think, uh, for, for one, it... At the time, we assumed that we were not going to have a chance at the NCAA tournament, uh, which is a lot harder to take than losing after you played an unbelievable team against uh, an unbelievable game against a team who's been nowhere than number two or so in the country all year. But there was a little bit of sadness, and um, you know, you watch the other team celebrate, and you watch your team kind of the opposite of that, I guess. And, right. Uh, you know, something comes to an end, and I walked away and thought, well, I'm proud of Yale hockey. I'm proud of all the, the players on the team that I've gotten to know over this year and last year, and obviously all four years, whoever's left. And uh, I was really looking forward to uh, to seeing my brother after the game and giving him a hug and, and telling him how proud I was of him uh, for his career, uh, for the heart he showed to be a part of that game at all uh, after the injury he suffered around Thanksgiving. And uh, really just for the his entire amateur career, which spanned years and produced many incredible moments and uh, just so much about it. I'm kind of writing something uh, right now to kind of summarize my feelings about everything. So we uh, we went. Uh, this was being played in New Hampshire. Who's I think it's leave, live free or die, right? State motto there. Could be sure. Yeah, live free or die in New Hampshire. That's, that's your choices. Uh, <laughs> being played at something called the Verizon Wireless Center in Manchester, and um, we were kind of walking around. You know where? You, you know when they play at Yale or uh, a rink you've been to, you know where to go to see them after. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this case, we didn't really know where to go. You know, where will they be? So we went and we talked to uh, the first miserable bitch of the afternoon that I met. I just politely went up to her and said, you know, my brother plays for Yale, and we we're just wondering where uh, where, where we need to go to uh, to see them after the game. She said, oh, they're not coming out. They're not. They're not going to be anywhere where you can see them. Their bus is in the back in the loading dock, and they're going straight to the bus. And 
and that's not an area you can access. And I said, well, you know, uh, that's not the case. They're obviously going to be coming out. Somewhere, right. Uh, they're not just going to leave without saying goodbye to their families. So is it just that you don't know or – and uh, she said, that's the information I have. They're not coming out. Hmm. I said, oh, okay. And I turned around and walked away. We were standing there and she came back over to us and said, oh, I was just told that if they do decide to come out, it'll be uh, Section 110. Or whatever. Okay. Said, oh, okay. So, well, I'm going to lean towards they're going to decide to. So, we're going to go up there. So, we went up there, and uh, eventually everyone was up there, all the family and parents and some of the boosters and whoever wanted to stick around and and see them. Big crowd kind of standing there. I think the second game had about started by then. And, you know, we're waiting, and you see the first player come up. I don't remember who it was, maybe... Might have been Fallon. The captain comes up. You see another player and another player. And I was sitting there thinking, wow, Anthony must be taking this pretty hard. See, I was going to say, now I have no idea what's going to happen. I assumed when you said something on Facebook about, or sorry, on Twitter, about you were pumped to get back to the podcast because you are going to rant on the NCAA. I thought there was going to be some whole team rule against this, but now you're telling me other players came out. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, uh. I was thinking, oh, he must be taking it pretty hard. Right. So somebody finds out that five players have been selected for a random drug test. Oh, okay. I did hear this. Okay. So the players chosen for the drug test were Anthony. Mm-hmm. Uh, three other players not involved in the game including one who hasn't played in a game since December. Okay. Out for the year with concussions. Okay. And then another player. So we have a senior, three players who didn't play in the game at all, and a fifth player. We're the ones chosen to drug test so that the NCAA can prove that this game was legit, legitimate, you know, and played to the, to the fairest of NCAA standards. Can I interrupt with another question? Sure. Has he ever, and I don't even mean just him, but have they ever faced drug testing before? Like, is this normal? Uh, they can, during NCAA tournament. Okay, just during the tournament. They can test up to 10 people. And I do believe they're scheduled, you know, they have to give a sample every year. Sure. And then I think maybe they're potentially subject to one random test okay. a year as well. So, uh, we wait. And it's maybe uh, about 6 o'clock by now. And we see the first player come up from the drug test. Okay. And then there's four of the five players up from the drug test. And uh, then there's still no Anthony. And uh, players are starting to go back to the bus because it's going to be time to leave. Uh, Players who weren't drug tested are saying goodbye to their families. Hallways clearing out, and I get a call from a New Haven number that's not in my phone. So I answer, and it's Anthony, and he says, My urine is diluted. (laughs) It needs to be a .05. I've tried three times. I'm at .01. Okay. I can't leave this room until I finish. They've taken away my phone. And I'm not really sure what I can do, but I'm standing here in this room 
in my Under Armour. I haven't had a shower. And I said, well, just, you know, do whatever you need to do. You know, drinking isn't the answer because it's diluted diluted, because he's had too much water. Yet he's already given three samples. So you need to find a way to create urine but not dilute his sample. (laughs) And... So I just told him, you know, hang in there. We'll wait. You know, we got nothing right. else to what do. You, what else are you going to do? We'll wait for you. So he calls me about, let's say it's 6.30 now. And remember, the game had ended at around 5.07. Okay. And he says, I've done six tests. I'm at a point zero two. It's getting worse. No, he started at point zero one. Okay, I think you said point oh three. Okay. He's made it up to point zero two. He needs to get to point zero five. Right. He's given six samples at this point. And he said, the bus is leaving. It's just me and the AD down here now. He has a car. They're going to go pack the hotel and come back for me. But right now, I haven't finished. So I said, all right. uh, Geez, you know, well. So he calls back a minute later, and he says, the guy who's doing the drug testing said that you and Greg and our parents can come down here and say goodbye to me because as soon as I get the drug test, I have to shower and get on the bus so the bus can go back to New Haven. Okay. So the guy comes up, big fat guy, nice guy though. Wearing an all-access pass. Okay. And he takes us to the door to bring the four of us down the stairs. And we're stopped by the security guard. Who says people with all-access passes don't have the authority to bring people without all-access passes past this point. So the guy explains the situation to the people. And next thing you know, there's all kinds of people... In yellow jackets, blue jackets, they're on their headphones, uh, they're discussing the matter, and uh, ultimately it's declared that only the parents can go down. Okay. So, by now it's past two hours past the end of the game. It's well past seven o'clock, and I asked the guy, the drug tester... What uh what um what happens if he can't get to a point zero five? And he said, "Well, he has to stay there till he does." And why don't you try to get him a pretzel? Because the salt could help. So we had to buy him a five dollar pretzel <laughs> to aid in his NCAA <laughs> drug test. Okay. And he said that if if it takes till tomorrow, he needs to stay in this room. In the clothes he wore in the hockey game, having not had the chance to take a shower, not to be in the locker room when his coach addressed the team at the end of the game, uh, not to uh, take his jersey and his equipment off as the last time as a Yale hockey player, uh, not be able to get on the bus and go pack his hotel room, to start the bus trip back to New Haven with his teammates, his last road trip as a Yale player, and not to have the chance to say and hug his family, and thank them for coming. My parents were allowed to go down there, 
but it was it, I guess it was a mess. Uh, they wouldn't let him pass like a certain line. Uh, it was based. They weren't even there for like two and a half minutes. So I mean, they can't legally hold it. Like, what if he left? Would they consider it like a failed test? Is that the? Who knows what they would do? But Anthony was never going to do anything right, right, that right. would bring embarrassment or shame to Yale hockey sure, program. Right. So he was there till almost eight o'clock. Wow! And then he got in the car with the AD and drove. Uh, to where the bus had stopped to wait for him about 45 minutes down the road so he could at least uh, be with the team for the last hour or so of the bus ride after his last uh, hockey game. Have you, you talked to him I, you talked to him since I take it Of course yes yeah, yeah, yeah. did they days uh, ago did, did his teammates bust his balls for this or well it was nine samples um, that it took oh my God. Uh, I said to him when he called me the second time, you know, have you asked the tester, is it the small dick? Is that an issue? <laughs> uh, and he said that wasn't it. So, uh, look at the NCAA uh, is uh, an organization that is considered only as corrupt or as corrupt as every organization in sports short of FIFA, probably. <laughs> okay. The integrity of uh, the NCAA falls somewhere uh below FIFA but above the WWF. Yeah, I I almost have more problem with the fact that if they're doing it to guarantee integrity, then why did you test three players that didn't even play in the game? Three players who didn't play in the game, one who doesn't have eligibility ever again and a fifth player. Yeah. Yeah, it's And, and what did you accomplish NCAA? All right. What did you do with these tests? You're going to make a player who just played for you out there? You broadcasted on TV. I'm sure they get a rights fee. He gave him and his teammates gave a great game, a great show, and they drag him out of the locker room less than five minutes after the game in his sweaty clothes into a room, take away his phone, and tell him he needs to stay in that room as big as a closet until he provides a sample that they deem acceptable. That's crazy. That explains he all He couldn't your, say uh... goodbye to his family. I didn't get a chance to hug my brother. And that wasn't all of the sins of the NCAA that weekend. I mean, they also have North Dakota humiliating Quinnipiac and whoever they played in the second game in front of about 7,000 of their fans in Fargo playing two absolute home games five miles away from their campus. Really? In the NCAA tournament. But you can almost forgive that because at least they're a one seed, right? At least they're a number one seed. But what about Providence, another four seed, who they moved above Yale and above Quinnipiac to play in the city of Providence as a four seed? Against a one seed, they don't they don't try to avoid that at all, or they did it on purpose. Really, it was avoided. Huh? They were the 15 seed, and they got to play the fourth one seed because it was in Providence, and they knew that Providence College would draw more fans there. Wow. And North Dakota was sent to North Dakota because they would sell out the region. 
And you know what? It's forgivable to some degree when it's a one seed because you kind of earned that. Sure, yeah. And it wouldn't make a lot of sense. We'd be criticizing them for sending North Dakota to Manchester sure. as a one seed when they could have played in Fargo. But when you watch the games, you think you feel bad for Quinnipiac and whoever they played in the second game because it's unbelievably unfair. But it it's something they earned. Right. You know, but Providence College earned nothing. They were the last at-large bid team in the tournament. And they got to play in Providence against the lowest of the four one seeds who just happened to be, at no fault of Providence, playing the game without their two best players, as we mentioned on the podcast last week. And without much surprise, Providence went on to win that game and then win the next game, and they're in the Frozen Four. So congratulations on CAA. You were able to give uh, Providence. Or a 16 seed. And Providence earned it. They won the game. Sure. So good for them. But they should have been in Manchester playing BU. Not at home playing a team severely disadvantaged. And another sin for the great NCAA. Uh, University of Minnesota Duluth Bulldogs. We're given a charter nonstop flight to New Hampshire for their game against Minnesota. That seems fair. The NCAA is in charge of travel for this tournament because it's an NCAA. Okay. You know? Well, after they were eliminated and had to fly home, they flew them commercial from Manchester's airport to another airport then to the Minnesota airport, and then put them on a bus from Minnesota to Duluth. (laughs) Thank you for playing in our tournament. Here, take three flights and a bus ride back to your campus. That's pretty funny. Uh, Yeah, that's good stuff. Where where does this organization get off? Fuck you, NCAA. I'm fucking pissed off. You took for me a chance to give my brother a hug at the end of his amateur career. You know, going into going into uh, when he was returning from his injury, I said I wanted to do two things very badly. I wanted to be at his last, his first game when he returned from his injury, and I wanted to be at his last game. I wanted to be at his last game that he played as an amateur, and not because I wanted to say I was there in the stands and got to see him play in the game. That was part of it. But the reason was because I wanted to go up to him after and look him in the eye and tell him how proud of him I was and how much I love him and how happy I am that he was able to accomplish as much as he did as an amateur and hug him and look him in the eye. But no, he was locked in a magic room in the basement that the state of New Hampshire and the uh, uh, the arena organizers who blamed it all on the NCAA, by the way. Oh, no, it's an NCAA rule. We can't have you down in this hallway. (laughs) Your parents can go, but you can't. You can't go down in this hallway for the magical three minutes they granted my mother and father to stand there and say hello to him and hug him as long as they didn't cross a line. (laughs) And so they could give him the $5 pretzel to aid in his... His uh, never-ending drug test. So fuck you, NCAA. You're bullshit. Everyone knows you're bullshit. But at least the game was was proven to be uh, a game played with integrity. Because three kids who weren't even in the fucking game passed a drug test. 
Three kids. What kid hasn't played since what did you say? December before Christmas break. Yeah, he suffered a concussion. Out for the season. <laughs> That's ridiculous. All right, let's start the show. Season five, episode ten. It's March thirty first, two thousand fifteen. We have Luke Wynn from Sports Illustrated on to talk about the NCAA tournament, and David Shoemaker from Grantland will be here to talk about WrestleMania. Three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. Uh, the douchebags that run the NCAA have a basketball tournament, and it's down to four. <laughs> uh, Kentucky just managed to uh, beat Notre Dame in a pretty decent basketball game. After squeaking by West Virginia. Yeah, they only what? West Virginia talked a lot of shit about how they were going to be the team to end the uh, undefeated run, and yeah. they lost by 40, I think. My favorite stat of that game was that uh, Kentucky did not have to score in the second half, and they still would have won that game. You know, it was a very chalky tournament, but what that gives you is a Final Four with three one seeds and a uh, seven seed, uh, but one from a traditional powerhouse program with a powerhouse coach in Michigan State and Tom Izzo. So, Don, I ask you, as I always do, uh, will you be watching the Final Four this weekend on Saturday or Monday? I might, but it's more about... There's a lot of there's a lot of money to be lost by the sports books here. Someone yeah, the million dollar bet or whatever. Yeah, someone essentially went into Vegas. I can't remember what sports book, what casino he went into, and said, "How much would I need to bet for to make a million dollars on Michigan State winning the national championship?" So he bet twenty thousand dollars. So if they win the national championship, uh, he makes out great. Someone has a big bet on Kentucky finishing forty and zero. And there was another one on on Duke, I think. So, some not I hope as big there's as a way a for them to lose all of them. I know it'd be great. It'd be just funny to watch that go into chaos. So I, I'm interested for that reason. In the end, I'm sure those betters will be hedging and walking away with some of Vegas. I, I would, money. I would hope so. Uh, especially the guy who's won a million dollars or could win a million dollars. Yeah, uh, you know he can bet whatever five hundred thousand on Duke right. or whatever. Right, whatever. Yeah, as long as Michigan, I think he'd need Michigan State to win the next one. So, or no, I mean you can bet the, the semifinals. No, you just hedge. Yeah, I guess you could hedge Duke. It's easier if they win once. If not, yeah. you have to hedge twice. Yeah, yeah. If they win once. It's I think a no brainer. Right, but he's got options. Yeah, I'm interested for that reason. Other than that, I don't have any real rooting interest. Like I said, I'm interested to see history, so 40-0 and 0 would be cool. I, I have no reason to hate Kentucky or anything. So, We'll talk more about the NCAA basketball tournament with Luke Wynn in a little bit. The douchebags that run the NCAA hockey tournament are also down to four. The Frozen Four, it's uh, one of the best and most underrated sporting events there is. I obviously got to watch the BU-Yale game. We didn't talk much about the game, but I thought it was very well played. I thought Yale was the better team in the first and second period. I thought BU absolutely dominated the third period. And if not for sort of a miracle snipe 
uh, by Frankie Dechara in that period, uh, BU would have won in regulation. Uh, but similar to boxing, we kind of got one shot in in the third round or in the third period there and uh, went in. Uh, the, the shots, I think, were 11 or 12 to 2 or something in that period. It was the classic uh, mistake period where you go in and you stop doing everything that has got you to that point and try to just kill a 20-minute power play. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for the second time in three weeks, they gave up their advantage of playing four lines and got obsessed with trying to match the other team's shortened bench. Yeah. Are it cost you, them in the end. Are you a Yale fan for life now? I know with they'll you, always be the number one team in college hockey. I cheer for okay because I know with uh, with like when he played junior A, it was more about like what can this do, where can this get him, kind of thing. Like no, Anthony's had an unbelievable experience at Yale, and I've had a lot of fun being a Yale hockey fan. Yeah, and I uh, mean for at least I, the next three, I, years, it won't be as I won't be as closely. Right, cheering for them. I don't know if I'll be a subscriber to the Ivy League Network to watch the games or not, but they'll certainly be the team that they're that I'll be cheering for. And if they're ever at Niagara or something, I'd probably go definitely check go check it out or uh, whatever. Uh, kind of a cool thing. Uh, last year we had Sam Coda from Union mm-hmm. uh, here to uh, to talk on the podcast about winning the national championship. And he was a line mate of my brother's right. in junior. The other player on that line plays for Nebraska Omaha. Is that Zombo? Zom- Dominic Zombo. Okay, and I heard he, the name and I knew I knew it. Somewhere. And he is in the uh, the Frozen Four this year. So it would be pretty sweet, I think, if one line from juniors went back yeah. to back to back. That would be sweet. Uh, Nebraska Omaha and RIT were the two worst teams in the tournament. And Minnesota State and Harvard have to absolutely be just shaking their heads. That they let one of those two teams come out of that bracket. Uh, Minnesota State uh, blew it and lost to RIT. You could say RIT's goalie kind of stole it. And also there was an inexcusable uh, goal scored by RIT that was waved off on the ice. And then for some reason counted after the Hockey East officials uh, watched the play. It was basically uh, a RIT player pushed an Minnesota defender into his goalie. The goalie fell down, and another RIT player shot the puck into the now open net. Oh, it was okay. originally waved off, and then somehow during review, it was determined that the Minnesota player initiated the contact, not the RIT player. I strongly, strongly disagree with that. Hmm. Uh, so, in the end, Nebraska Omaha got that spot, and they will play. Providence in essentially the game that determines who will lose to the winner of BU <laughs> in North Dakota, who will play the national championship game in the semis. The problem with that is, is you believe that yourself and the winner of that game in a pretty quick turnaround sometimes can get picked off by a team playing with nothing to lose because everyone has already uh, coronated the other team. It is single elimination. So. Single elimination hockey. So two weeks from now, they'll be in Boston. That's kind of the way it has to be, right? Single elimination? Because uh, of, I, I saw someone make an argument that they could play best of threes in, in this part to get down, and, and certainly in the first round in the regionals. 
does seem it seems a little weird. But at some point you'd have to go to single elimination, so. Okay. And, and they have a wonderful tournament. There's no reason to make changes to it. Yeah. I think it's the right amount of teams. I yeah, would look yeah. at changing how you figure out who the teams are. I think the pairwise is flawed, but in the end it's a wonderful event. Third thing, WrestleMania 31 was on Sunday. It was a little bit of fun for me to kind of regroup after a tough weekend and the live free or die state. Uh, it was a good event. It was a really good WrestleMania. Uh, Seth Rollins won the uh, main event despite not being in the main event and despite losing the second match of the night to Randy Orton uh, when he cashed in his Money in the Bank uh, suitcase and uh, pinned not the champion. Okay, is it like a tournament or something now? No, so they have a thing called Money in the Bank. Okay. Which is a, a match. Basically a ladder match. They suspend a briefcase above yeah, the yeah. ring. Okay. If you get the briefcase, you have it for one year, and you can cash it in at any time for a match against the champion. So he cashed <laughs> okay. it in at the very end of the match, making the match a triple threat, and pinning the guy who was incapacitated, but not the champion. I see. Uh, your so buddy it was, was a all, good ending. Yeah, your buddy was all over Facebook saying how Sting got ripped off somehow. Or you know, the Sting Triple H match is really interesting. Uh, someone who hadn't watched wrestling for 15 years and stepped into that would have been like, "Whoa!" <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Triple H is wrestling Sting, and then the NWO comes out, and then DX comes out. Okay, so that's stuff one of I these, remember. Yeah. It was one of these kind of classically overbooked matches that was kind of fun for what it was okay you know uh it was pretty pretty solid uh there was a ladder match to start which had some pretty cool bumps in it but nobody killed themselves luckily uh john cena defeated uh rusev who came out in a tank oh yeah which was kind of cool where was it? It was in you the 49ers stadium oh okay uh it looked beautiful there were 78,000 people there and uh, we'll talk about it with uh, David Shoemaker later. Uh, you weren't able to come and watch because uh, you had family over at your place. But uh, would you consider coming over to watch WrestleMania 32? I have no problem with wrestling. I just haven't stuck with it. My favorite thing has always been the Royal Rumble. But I, yeah, I have no problem with wrestling. I, I enjoy it. I won't turn it. It's too long. I, I know you said it. Oh, I said the same. That's the first thing I said to you, About right? this thing. But I mean, yeah. even Raw, it's like, holy shit. This thing, isn't Raw like three hours Three long? hours. Yeah, it's one hour too long. Holy moly. Yeah. But that that's always, I, there's been times where I would just flip it on and watch it for a little bit, but I, I don't follow it anymore, but I have no problem with wrestling. What do you think about talking about wrestling on this podcast? I think there's enough appeal of it. I mean, Richard Deitch is the main man as far as ESPN was all over this this weekend. Yeah, so I mean they broke the news of Brock Lesnar resigning on Sports Center. Yeah, so Ronda I mean, Rousey uh made an appearance at WrestleMania. Did she is she gonna She got in the ring. We talked she's still about, under contract with uh UFC. Right, and we talked about how she's kinda too good for the UFC right now. Right. So I think as long as the WWE promised to never let her get pinned it makes a lot of sense for both promotions yeah. to have her do both if she wants. Yeah. I don't see any downside for Dana White. I mean, I guess she could get injured, but have you seen the girls she would wrestle? <laughs> I mean, do you Is believe mostly... that any of them could injure her? 
I, I, is it all divas still? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they're very, you know, divish. Right, right. You know, yeah, no, I, I, have, I have no, I have nothing against wrestling. All right. We will, uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk about the NCAA basketball tournament with Luke Wynn. Do a quick book club update, and then we'll talk uh, wrestling with David Shoemaker from Grantland. If Grantland can do it, we can do it, right? Yeah, why not? And then uh, we'll finish with one last thing. Our next guest is from Wisconsin and is a graduate of Northwestern. He writes about college basketball for Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com and is making his eighth appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster is welcome to Luke Quinn. What's up, Luke? Hey. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. How you doing, bud? Busy? Just a little bit. Just a little bit, huh? Hey, usually we talk to you uh, at the beginning of the tournament. It's the first time we kind of talk to you at this stage. And I was thinking about that, and it's like a lot of times we spend a lot of that time talking about how the tournament was put together, and I think maybe a, an interesting way to start this time is how do you think the tournament has been played? Well, I think that, I guess I, I just got back from Cleveland where the last game I saw was the fantastic best, best one, between right? yeah. Notre Dame and Kentucky, and so I may be a little, I don't know, I may be a little biased, but I thought, we, and, and the fact that we have like th- three legitimate title contenders from the start of the tournament meeting in the final four plus a team that's kind of gotten hot in, in Michigan State and that's playing at a really high level I think that's like so really it's a it's been a good tournament for great basketball I think that and it's not not nearly over I think that we're going to get at least two more two out of three good games in, in Indy yeah I think a complaint I heard early the first couple of days especially after the first day was that it was uh chalky if that's a word but i think you get rewarded for that kind of in the later stages and you get a really great weekend like we just had be kind of as a as a result of that you kind of agree with that or? yeah i mean i think we like the teams that we lost that were highly seated just weren't like virginia right you watch virginia in december early january that version of them was was a title contender but the version that was in the tournament with, you know, Justin Anderson kind of still coming off that injury really wasn't, it wasn't all the way there. And so I don't think it was like a tragedy that they get knocked out, right? Just because I just don't think that the state that they were in March was nearly the state they were earlier in the season. And Villanova, I don't know, I didn't totally believe them anyway. So the teams I really believed in that were title contenders were Kentucky, Wisconsin, Arizona, Duke, and Arizona and Wisconsin had to play each other, so they both couldn't make it. Right. Um, but the other three made it, you know, made it to the Final Four, which I think is is really good for strong basketball ahead. Yeah, well, I, was, I was looking at some of the stuff that that you have uh, have on the website, and going into this weekend, you had uh, ranked the sixteen schools uh, based on their chance to win it, and I think it was for your top six. But I know at least one of the two teams played each other. So it seems like uh, the quality of uh, going into the tournament is what is really uh, kind of was the quality last week, and now we'll we'll create what should be a really good final four. Because I feel like in the past, the one thing that has disappointed me uh, the, at, at, a, at a consistent level about the tournament has been the final four. Sort of, it's like usually if it's a 
I don't know. That seems to happen a lot more than not enjoying the early rounds. Maybe it's just a, a numbers game that you're more likely to just have when you only have two games and then a third game. You're just not always going to get classics, I guess, maybe. when you have, yeah. As opposed to 16 a day or whatever. Yeah, I always wonder, like, if it's, um, you know, I don't know if it's a coincidence that, like, I've been fortunate enough, because when you're a writer, you kind of, you know, it's like playing, it's like a, a sort of a, a, a lottery, like, you get you can get sent to any of eight spots the first, you know, the first weekend, and any of four the second weekend, and you just hope that you end up at good games, and, like, last year, I was at Kentucky, Wichita State, which I thought was, you know, SI named that. The, yeah, game, yeah. the best game of 2014 in any sport, which is a great one to cover. And this year, like that Notre Dame Kentucky game is awesome. And but both of those happened in, you know, like NBA or you know standard arenas. One was like a hockey arena in St. Louis, and this was the Cavs arena in Cleveland. And I don't think it's necessarily a coincidence that some of the best basketball is still played in basketball-ish arenas. And you know, when you move on to the final, like you saw in Houston. Um, you know, the, the overall dome theory, like dome creates bad shooting, has been kind of debunked. But there are certain places like that, that arena, that football arena in Houston has created some really bad offense. And I don't think, you know, I thought we were robbed a little bit from seeing, like, just how good Gonzaga is. Or, you know, uh, th- those were all clear basketball games than they probably should have been um, if they had been played in better arenas. So, you know, you, you run that risk. Like, you go into right. the Final Four, you're going to see like the version of Wisconsin that, you know, was awesome in, you know, an NBA arena in LA, or are you going to see something, you know, that's kind of struggling to acclimate to the surroundings? I would prefer that. I would always prefer that they just like gave up on having this massive crowd at the final four and just acknowledge it as a huge TV event and put it in a basketball arena. And, you know, but I guess you want to be inclusive. It's just at the expense of, the right setting for basketball. That's all. It's probably never a bad analysis to say you'd like to see basketball played in stadiums tending for basketball. So, uh, Let me ask you about Kentucky and Notre Dame. I'm curious, since you were there, first-hand perspective. Uh, I don't know that anyone... I don't know that that's true. I shouldn't say that. I'll, I'll just say me. I wasn't prepared for it to necessarily be a classic. I didn't necessarily think it would be... Uh, the West Virginia game either, though. Um, but I just wonder, is it a case of uh, the better teams in the tournament being closer to Kentucky than we thought? Or was it a case of uh, Notre Dame playing a perfect game and taking a, their best shot at a team and, and just barely missing out on, on uh, cashing it because they just made so many shots, uh, Kentucky, at the end there? I think that it's not the. I agree. I don't think the gap between Kentucky and these other best teams like is that huge. I mean, Notre Dame was, you know, Notre Dame played them closer than people expected. But you know, you showed like Kentucky hadn't faced an offense like Notre Dame's all year. And I think that these next two games, if it's Wisconsin and Duke back to back against Kentucky, like those are. It's not like imagining some, you know some juggernaut playing like a major like those are games that you know statistically i think you would expect them to go down to one to two possessions you know and and that so that's not like these are going to be legitimate games kentucky has a great defense but they do not have like an all-time offense and you see what happened like carl towns had to kind of you know carry them through like they don't have 
consistently great offensive options everywhere, you know, the same way that Wisconsin's got three, four guys, you know, making shots like Kentucky. Had, during that Notre Dame game for a while, they had, like, one offensive option. It was Towns, and everything else was not really working. So that leaves them vulnerable. Uh, but you, what you saw in, you know, what you saw in Cleveland was, the, like, a Notre Dame, which is one of the best offenses in the country, playing close to its peak level, uh, aside from maybe taking some bad shots in the final minute, and Kentucky still absorbed it because of this, um, like this late game ability that I don't know if I don't know if these other teams have. It just seems like Kentucky knows what to do in those situations, and it's partly like the Harrison twins don't get probably enough credit for just like the way they rise to that moment. And Calipari even said like that's they're still you know if you guys haven't noticed they're still driving the team and they you know they. Aaron hits the big shot, like three minutes left with three to kind of swing the momentum back, and Andrew, ball in his hands, gets the free throw line. Uh, I, th- I would expect them to be playing a pretty big role again over the next two. Uh, do you think we get a little bit suckered into being memor- mesmerized by the zero? That if this was a team who had a one or even a two next to their name, we wouldn't be quite as... Uh, I don't even want to say we're overrating them, because I don't think that's fair, but... Um, kind of looking at them as like this uh, team that would be a failure if they did anything but won the national title at this point, that somehow, you know, losing 88 to 87 to Duke, let's just say on Monday, would be a disappointment because they went into the tournament undefeated. It would, it would probably be different, right, if they had a one or a two next to their name instead of a zero? Yeah, but at this point, like, I mean, that Kentucky team, I, I would really say that I don't think there's any anything other than a, a champ like everything else other than a championship is a disappointment right. for them because they were yeah the undefeated thing makes it bigger but i mean they also remember like they entered the season with more ta- with just this incredible you know collection of talent and i don't think that even starting in october november anything less than the national championship would have been you know like sure. <laughs> viewed as a success so yeah, like the zero is making people forget that they had some struggles. I, I think that like the zero combined with seeing them sort of just mash West Virginia made people forget that there's some stretches where like this offense doesn't work that well, like against A and M or against you know the Ole Miss for a while, or you know they're they're more vulnerable than you realize. Um, but <laughs> I don't know they're. It is it is a thing like I, I just don't I don't see any of their fans or even any media people being able to come up with a scenario where they're like Kentucky tried hard and they should be viewed as success because they're thirty nine and one you know it's just not going to happen right yeah that, I mean that is too bad though I mean if you went thirty nine to one and lost in double overtime on a buzzer beater or something I'll take that game Duke I'm sure, like, and, it's and it's like wow game. man that was a bust of a season Kentucky but. Uh, yeah, not a bust, but you know what I mean. Like, no, I do. No, I, it's, it's I do. His I'm pretty or nothing. At yeah, this. I, I just you know, it's that's no. what it is. Yeah, yeah, they got three opponent, three potential opponents left. Who's got the best shot at it? Um, who would you want to be the most uh, of the three? I actually think, even though Wisconsin is the one that I think people are pointing to, just because they stretch, you know, they have the ability to stretch Kentucky out. I still think I I actually would go with Duke just because. Duke has played. Duke has played really well in some in big games and road. And I know it's not a road game, but just like they've risen to moments where 
they've risen to some big moments this season, and I feel like their guards are um, more like Wisconsin. You know, you have it's it's more of the forwards. You know, it's scoring, but like Duke's guards, Tyus Jones and Quinn Cook, I feel like are could be really good in a game like this. Clutch shooting. Um, it doesn't have to be on Okafor. I realize that there's some defenders who can you know bother him, but the way Duke plays that small lineup with you know Winslow at the four, like that's that spreads the team out too. And I think that they might have more potential as like three point shot makers. So I would Duke just by a little bit over Wisconsin. Curious question about Duke. I don't know if you thought about this at all, but if they were to beat an undefeated uh, Kentucky in the national championship game, would you look at that as a bigger, similar, or not as big win over the win they had in the early 1990s against the undefeated uh, UNLV team in the Final Four? I think that the UNLV win... um, I think the UNLV win would be bigger still. Because, I mean, I was was really young. I'm not... You know, there are college basketball writers who've been at, you know, a ton of Final Fours and probably right. could give better context than me, but in terms of, like, me reading and watching that's watching those old games, um, like, there was, this, there was this bigger, much bigger air of invincibility around that UNLV team than there is around this Kentucky team now. People view that this Kentucky team as great, but they also view them as potentially beatable, whereas I just don't think that anyone really expected Duke to uh, Duke to do that in 91. Like, I think coming into the... T- if you get a Kentucky-Duke title game this year, it's like, what's the spread? Kentucky 3-4? I don't know. It's something like that. Right. And, yeah. it, it, you know, that's not that crazy. That's They're expected to win, but it's not that wild. I, I, my guess is just that, one, I mean, UNLV had destroyed them the year before, and, and two, yeah. uh, I think that that UNLV team... Just the nature of college basketball, they were all together, I think, a bit longer and able to build up the uh, the aura a bit more. Uh, I want to ask you about Michigan State. I don't want them to get forgotten, but I know I think in the back of my head, every time I'm filling out a bracket, I always pick them maybe a round or two more than they might be projected. It just seems like there's something about that coach and that team in this tournament over a long stretch that I just... I believe in them to win tournament games. An example maybe is just going into the Michigan State-Oklahoma game. There was no doubt in my mind Michigan State was going to win that game. I mean, they're just a team that has success in those games, and Oklahoma is a team that doesn't. I don't, I, and that's without even thinking about the actual basketball and the, how the guards match up or whatever. It's just kind of a perception. Um, what do you think about what is it about Michigan State? Beyond the well, sort mean, of novice, novice, uh, uh, I mean, projection. The, the Izzo factor is like statistically quantifiable as he's the best overachieving tournament coach ever. I mean, I've seen other people write it. I think 538 was like the most recent one to show that he's the most, the coach who outperforms his seed more than anyone else. Uh, that's a certain thing. But it doesn't, like, Izzo being there doesn't guarantee that. They're going to, you know, do this every season. I mean, he had, for the previous two years, you know, he had some nice teams that he took into the tournament. You know, that the combination of Gary Harris, you know, the, the Gary Harris, Keith Appling teams, Adrian Payne, those were decent teams, and they didn't, um, you know, they didn't break through. I think that it's more, it's not just Izzo this time. It's a combination of having, of, like, this momentum thing, kind of getting, 
you could see like the Michigan State that you saw if you watched them in the Big Ten tournament was really good compared to go back. Um, I don't know February. They just they were kind of a they were they weren't that exciting of a team. I didn't expect that much out of them. But and you you also have this combination of like really good leaders too, uh, Trice and Valentine. I mean, those are guys you look at and have extreme confidence in in tournament situations. Like those are those are those are the kind of like playmakers that maybe the previous team didn't have that didn't really rise to that you know tournament moment. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh- Luke Wynn uh, writes for, for Sports Illustrated. He's at Luke Wynn on Twitter. Uh, does a great job covering this tournament. It's been one of my favorite for years, whether it was the blog era or now the columns as he's been at sites the last couple of years. Just some really great stuff. And it seems like the great games follow him, as you mentioned, uh, Kentucky uh, the last couple of years. You're going to have to follow them, I guess, until uh, they let you down for the next couple of years, huh? The- <laughs> well, I've been, I've been assigned by the magazine to follow Kentucky this tournament just because that's the that's the team I have if they you know if they win it all and they, I'll be writing that story so it's it's Kentucky or nothing for me <laughs> at this point well, um, that's the that was the assignment all the way through Louisville Cleveland Indy to all Kentucky so I hope that uh I know the last 48 hours here so the political yeah. world has kind of turned its eyes to Indiana and I really hope that that doesn't uh ruin the moment for any of these guys i hope the basketball can can still be uh the focus uh when we get there i don't think it's uh, going to ruin the moment but i think that this tournament is having the big this first big event there after yeah it hurts huh? this loss of place is is kind of an opportunity to shine light on uh some really like reprehensible forms of of protecting discrimination and, and i think it's any as long as it's not i mean i want to see the basketball too but i just mean that to not say anything when there's a national platform in in indiana right now and it would be wrong i think that it's just kind of like something that can set the tone for indiana maybe reconsidering what they're doing going forward if you know all this national spotlight descends on them and you know and people express that this is not okay so i hope that there are people who speak up i also hope there's great basketball right yeah it could be a great opportunity for yeah. the cause and hopefully it's not at the sake of uh the kids having a, a moment or whatever but i think they'll be fine in yeah. the end they usually are uh, i'll let you go i know you're super busy just give me uh three names two games and then the third some winners oh the, i'm picking the winners i'm going kentucky duke final kentucky over duke in in the final thanks for squeezing it in bud yeah no problem have a good one steve yep. later on All right, I want to thank Luke Wynn for being on the podcast today. Always great to talk to Luke. Quick book club update. Uh, Ed O'Bannon and the 1995 National Basketball Champion UCLA, UCLA Bruins. A book called 11th Heaven by uh, Bob Mish. Really excited that uh, we're able to feature another one of Bob, Rob's books. I uh, really like the first one about... Bryce Harper, and I'm really uh, into this one about uh, about O'Bannon. Kind of a cool thing, a short story about this book. Uh, I actually got kind of an advanced copy of it in August, and uh, I was on my honeymoon, I think. I was out in Vegas, and they had this, uh, it's like a banner 
they have them in like the sports collectible stores or like banners with the team names and what years they won championships on them. And my uh, the first lady had had uh, had seen this book in the house, and I was trying to explain to her uh, who Ed O'Bannon was and how UCLA had won all these national championships. Uh, in a specific time under Wooden, and then he was on the team that had won the next one in the 90s. And it was sort of hard to explain, but it was really easy to explain in front of that visual and to say, look at all of those, see how they're all together, and then there's that one in 95. That's the one he won. So uh, it's really a great book. Uh, Rob Mish is a great writer from Vegas. Uh, he says this is his best work, and I, I, I kind of believe him. Uh, 11th Heaven. My Rob Mish, Ed O'Bannon, and the 1995 National Basketball Champion, UCLA Bruins. We're going to take a break and come back with David Shoemaker. Our next guest is from Kentucky, grew up in Texas, and lives in Brooklyn, where he writes about wrestling for the mighty Grantland. Uh, He's coming to us just days after returning from San Jose to cover WrestleMania. He's making his fourth appearance on the show today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to David Shoemaker. What's up, David? How's it going, man? It's good to have you back. Missed you. It's great to be here, man. It's been an exciting week for me, but uh, this this has got to be the high point. (laughs) I'm sure. Uh, the, uh, you know, the first time we had you out was for your book, you were promoting your book. And, um, it's kind of the first time on the show we had really done a, a wrestling spot and it went, it went over huge. And then you were the second person I think on about wrestling after last year's WrestleMania. And since we kind of sprinkled some other things in here and there, we did the, uh, death to the W death of WCW book. Those two guys were on to, to kind of talk about that. And that was kind of, I love that book. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book. And, uh, Last week, Mike Johnson was on. Yeah. Yeah, he was a really nice guy. Great. And um, yeah, I think maybe one other guy. Here's the interesting thing I noticed. These guys are really threatened by you and mainstream media covering wrestling. They don't like it. Because really? I, yeah, because I want to put you over all the time because like, you're like our wrestling guy. It's kind of like when we have a basketball guy on and I want to brag that like Lee Jenkins is our basketball guy because I think he's – the best in the world at basketball, and I think you're the best doing wrestling right now. And they just, they're just like, yeah, you know, they just no-sell it kind of hard, or they kind of pick at ESPN being fickle about it, or I don't know, just nobody like came out and said like, oh, yeah, Shoemaker stinks or anything like that. It's just a it's just a feeling I get like, wow, these guys really are threatened that the, the bigger sites are, are – more mainstream sites, I guess, for sports are getting involved in this. Well, listen, I mean, it's not like it's, I mean, it, I can sympathize to a certain extent. I mean, it's, uh, you know, when I started writing for Deadspin five years ago, whenever it was, it was like Deadspin got a bunch of like shit for publishing wrestling content. And, right. you know, then I went on to write for Groundland. And since, th- since that's happened, you know, there's been New York Times articles and New Yorker articles and Atlantic articles and, 
uh, and Deadspin, you know, does everything, is doing it on the regular now. I mean, it's all over the place. Rolling Stone, um, And so, you know, I can totally, I, I can, I, I, there, there are definitely moments where I, you know, we'll see an article in a really, like, giant periodical, and I'll be like, you know what, they could ask me to do that. <laughs> right. But, uh, but, you know, it's, it, I think it's, it's sort of human nature to that extent, and we're in a really weird spot right now where, you know, wrestling's going back into the mainstream. Um, I think for a long time, it's, I mean, this is, and, and I'm speaking, you know, in general about fans, not just writers. Like it's, you know, when you're, when your passion is the subculture, it's, it's natural to be uncomfortable when, when it sort of breaks out into a broader pop culture audience. Um, because it's comfortable to be part of a subculture. And also you feel like you sort of have a proprietary, uh, you know, claim on it. Um, and, and I think and those so, guys are charging well, mostly too for their stuff. You say know, that again. Those guys are also charging. Or you know what I mean for the most part for their material. Yeah, it's subscription based, and you know I don't have to pay to read your stuff on Grantland. So yeah, it's no. Like, oh. I mean, I, and I'm and I'm lucky to be in that situation. But yeah, I mean that's certainly. I mean the, the a lot of a lot of wrestling uh, writing on the internet is is paywalled, and right. um, you know I like. Like I give all the credit in the world to people that have figured out a way to make a living off of writing about wrestling. It's not an easy thing to do, and it's not like yeah, like I even make a, as much. I mean, I I have another job, you know, but uh, but yeah, I mean, when people say, you know, so and so writer's not getting enough credit, you know, and they're and all their work is behind a paywall. Well, you know, that's that's part of the that's that I don't. I mean, it's not their fault, but that's that's part of the the equation, you know. Right. Yeah, and I was asking. Uh... I think one of the WCW guys, if they thought that with people spending nine ninety nine for the network, have they found it ha- harder to get another couple dollars out of wrestling fans for their site? And they didn't think so at the time, but I, I would think that that could be a challenge uh, going forward. I've always said that I thought it's the idea that people who grew up Hogan marks, uh, I say that with sincerity because that was definitely one of them, um, People who grew up in the Hogan era and were huge fans have kind of grown up into prominence and are gatekeepers in these uh, bigger mainstream sites and and have made it kind of cool and okay to like and write and talk about wrestling. You think that that's what it is with this kind of explosion into the mainstream, or is it maybe something different in your opinion? Yeah, I mean that's that's certainly part of it. I mean, and and you know, uh, I mean, you could probably come up with a pretty compelling metaphor for for. Um, you know, like the NWA being the wrestling purists that are on the internet today, and, and people like me maybe being more of the, the Vincent Mann, Hulk Hogan sort of sort of uh, you know form of internet entertainment. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think particularly right now, I mean, there's probably a billion reasons that you could that you could use to explain why um, you know it's sort of having this mini explosion. Um, I mean, I think one thing is that there's just a lot more space for content. Um, also, it gets traffic you know i mean there's uh one of my buddies is, is running for for rolling stone and rolling stone's putting out a bunch of wrestling content now which is like kind right. of even weirder than some of the other spots who, who can treat it in a more academic way um but i think really it's like i mean i as a wrestling fan we always say that the, the thing you hear over and over again is uh you know you know that stuff's fake don't you <laughs> um which which you know i always say everybody else always says you know it kind of reflects more on the person saying it than than the wrestling fan because it's like so clearly fake and that's exactly the point but i feel like we're in this moment of like a broader pop culture now where everything is like is like fake right i mean it's you can't you can't 
watch the real housewives and then make fun of wrestling you know you're you can't i mean even even you know fox news or msnbc i use that comparison a lot but that stuff's just infotainment you know i mean it's the, the idea that that there's anything pure left in the in like the pop culture landscape is just ridiculous and so i think um wrestling is kind of getting it to do finally because in a lot of ways it was the forerunner of this but at it, at its base you just can't i mean it's it's no less silly than anything else out there and i was even talking on this show a couple of weeks ago about how even the ufc although their matches are obviously shoots, they're not above works all over the place. I mean, uh, no. the, the Dublin guy, I think, won a match that I had seen one night, and he like flipped out of the ring and happened to run into his next opponent who just happened to be sitting in the front row. You know, and there just happened to be people yeah, there. Yeah, and he just stole them. the he, he just stole the title belt from his from his opponent right. at the press conference <laughs> That's the other right. day. I mean, it's the most too. wrestling thing ever. Right. So um, they're not afraid UFC, of that either. Yeah. UFC, you know, despite the fact that that there there's a lot of crossover now with Lesnar and Ronda Rousey, um, you know, Dana White will will insist there's no correlation at all between the two things. You know, despite the fact that the fan bases overlap really significantly. Um, but they learned so much from the WWE just as far as the way they like produce their shows and create promo packages and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it's very, very influenced by it, and it's silly to think otherwise. Um, and even just like the bare, I mean, even the, the core of the sport, yeah, they're real fights, but like the reason wrestling became fake, and I'm going to like go back into like the, my book and like deep history here, but the reason wrestling became fake is because it was boring. I mean, that's one of, one of the main contributors that, like, you know, the, the early days of wrestling, professional wrestling, when it was, a, you know, a basically a legitimate sport, they'd be two-hour matches of guys just hugging and barely moving. And, you know, if you're, on the, if you're like, a, an aficionado on the first row, maybe that was intriguing. But if you're on the 20th row, it's just the most boring spectacle in the world. And so they had to develop this style that, that got it up off the mat, that got guys flying through the air, that made it exciting for people in the crowd. And UFC did the exact same thing. That's why they have the knockout of the night bonuses and the fight of the the night bonuses and all that kind of stuff because they're fi- they found their own way to create a sport that would not have evolved naturally. Right. Oh, so smart, this guy. You know, uh, that wrestling you were talking about, Bob Costas still thinks that that would sell today. <laughs> I just watched that a few few days ago, him telling Vince McMahon about, uh, on his, his HBO show about how uh, the Attitude Era was all wrong. They needed to go back to the, uh, to the grappling styles. You remember that? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and listen, and listen uh, you know, I'm I'm one I'm one of those people who who is not. I mean, who, who will say maybe there, there's a lot wrong about the Attitude Era, but oh, sure, it, and, yeah. and, and and to a certain extent, it's true that you know fans will. I mean, the biggest problem with going back to that style is that we've seen something else. You know, it's evolved and it's hard to put it back in the box. Right. But you know. Yeah, I mean, wrestling is, especially with WWE being, being the monopoly, I mean, they can sort of force-feed us, um, you know, whatever whatever it is that they're interested in putting on the screen. Uh, I think it would be extremely hard, though, to go back to uh, that sort of purist, uh, you know, one step removed from Greco-Roman-style uh, presentation. Well, one thing that is uh, unbelievable, considering how bad things were going the month or so before uh, WrestleMania, and I don't even mean... That I wasn't necessarily enjoying the shows, although there was some I didn't, some I did. But there was a real, real, very much a perception that this WrestleMania was going to be a disaster. The buildup was terrible. The card wasn't that strong. Uh, the go-home Raw was bad. It had low viewership. And now here we are, just a little bit after that. And things have thrown around like one of the best WrestleManias ever. And you know we're up to 1.3 million subscribers on the network. And it was a record high Raw or 
most not record high the the most viewers of raw in two years i think it was about over five million uh viewers or something like that this week so they really had an unbelievable week and my initial impression of wrestlemania was it was very good but i thought people were maybe enjo- maybe overrating it slightly because of how low their expectations were for it um i thought maybe it benefited from that a little bit but overall uh i really uh, enjoyed wrestlemania and i thought I think I liked it better than last year's WrestleMania, which is always something that I think. Did I like last year better or not, or this year? Uh, and uh, I thought overall they've just had a, a really great week and, and should be able to build off the momentum. What did you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I wrote in my, my column this week that I walked out, you know, after the event and was talking to my boss, Bill Simmons, and he was trying to figure out if that was a top three of all time or top five of all time, and I was right there with him. Um, and then, you know, by the time I was writing the piece, I was just like, okay, deep breath. Let's just wait until history catches up a little bit. Um, the whole thing was based, I mean, the the whole event was just really, really great, really solid from start to finish. I mean, to, to say that it was, I mean, you, you, as a wrestling fan, you kind of like check off boxes, you know, as far as like whether or not something was really great. And, and there were some boxes that definitely weren't checked. I mean, there were no match. The longest match was like 18 and a half minutes on the card, you know? So, um, but but everything was was super solid. It was really fun, really, and and overall the show was really immaculately put together and paced, uh, which I didn't, which I thought the exact opposite was going to happen once I realized they moved the tag team match and the battle royal to the pre-show because those are the things that sort of usually break the monotony of just like right. the one-on-one blood feuds. But they did it so well, uh, and you're right, it, it exceeded expectations. I think the biggest thing of all is that it ended on such a high with the, you know, Seth Rollins shockingly cashing in and the, and, you know, surprise ending to the event that, you know, that if we, uh, a lot of it's going to, I mean, uh, because of that, a lot of our perception, I feel like of the event is going to depend on where it goes from here. You know, if they had opened up Monday night with Roman Reigns destroying Seth Rollins and taking the title, I think our, we would all have just retroactively decided WrestleMania was terrible. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it, when, when, when storytelling is that significant a point in your main event, then uh, you, in some sense you have to wait for the story to play out. You know, I think the one thing that the WrestleMania didn't have, uh, just to be a little bit critical, was that the main event, the storytelling in the main event was so great. And the main event really was the, the best thing on the card. And we always talk about what is going to steal the show from the main event. And nothing did this time. Every, everything below it was, you know, solid. There wasn't any real clunkers. I mean, there were some that I was less interested in than others uh, for various reasons, but there was no complete duds. Uh, but there wasn't that undercard match that you would really look to and say, wow, it, it totally stole the show. Really, what stole the show was the main event, I would say. Uh, but it's the main event already, so you can't steal from yourself, I don't think. But, yeah, no, I, th- I think that's true. And before the show, I had said, I had said that, you know that was that was Rollins and and uh, and Orton's match. Right. I mean, like that that was the only one that really had the opportunity to be that seal the show match, which was kind of putting under pressure on them. Although they had uh, they had a really really good match. Um, Great but yeah, finish. I mean, I, th- I think that's I think that's valid. I mean, I, I think that the problem with the main event for me, I mean, there, with for everybody it was you know there were a lot of people that weren't that into Roman Reigns. Um, but with a lot of the matches, in, the the build to WrestleMania uh, gets really stagnant, and and I and it's not the amount of time they have. I wish they had more time to build, but it sort of seems like they just sort of have one idea 
that they want to get across and they spread it out over six weeks to get you to WrestleMania. And so there's a, there's not, there's not there's not like evolution going on and there and and you end up kind of despising some feuds or some aspects of feuds even more because it's just repeated um but what that did this year uh you know was was set us up for a great surprise at wrestlemania yeah that's two years in a row too that they had a big surprise at wrestlemania which i think at one point in my evolution as a wrestling fan i was jaded to the point that i didn't think they were capable of surprising me anymore that i had maybe seen everything and that was very silly and arrogant of me. Uh, the reality is it was a total shock, at least for me, when Brock Lesnar pinned Undertaker last year. And it was a surprise, maybe not a shock, uh, the way that the main event finished this year. So that's two years in a row. That's good, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, they, they, they really did just an excellent job. And and uh, it's you're right. It's really hard to surprise fans. Um they, you know, they did it. I mean, just about the smartest way possible. I mean, the way that everybody was a hundred percent assuming that Le- that that Reigns was going to win until Lesnar announced that he'd resigned, and then the, then you know it switched. I wrote before the event about the the gambling odds, uh, how they just like you know one one place took it off the board totally, right, and yeah. one place and one place took it down from three to one to even, and uh, and you know. It, the reaction swung so hard that everybody forgot about Seth Rollins. And then, I mean, you know, when the, when, when, when the real life, I always write about the, I mean, talk about the real, the real life storylines going on behind the scenes, but that was a great example of how like they use real life to distract you from just like the practical, you know, old style kayfabe storytelling. And, uh, and, and, you know, it really worked to their advantage. I mean, and also it should be said that like, it's, it, I don't think it's ever happened before that somebody cashed in in that way to insert themselves into a three-way at the end of the match and kind of formally enter it. Um, and so to sort of defy their own history like that, WWE, I think, did a really smart thing. When I was watching the match, I was like, wow, they are booking this just like the SummerSlam match. For almost the whole time, it was a Brock Lesnar squash. And then... Sort of for the last three and a half or four minutes, when Reigns got him out of the ring and then hit him against the the post and then was starting to beat him up in the ring, then they had me thinking, oh man, they're going to go with this kind of fighter's chance or or puncher's chance kind of story idea, you know, and then Rollins came in. So they took me in three different directions, you know, during a 15 or 20 minute match or whatever. Yeah, like I said, it was really well conceived. Yeah, really I mean, fun. from top to bottom, the whole thing was just was just well done. And uh, and you're exactly right. I mean, the thing you have to do as a wrestling fan, I mean, as a wrestling writer, is play off the fans' expectations. I mean, the old, the most traditional version of it is like you gotta execute a move successfully so that fans understand what's about to happen when you when they do a reversal of the move later on. Right. Right. So, like this—that's basically what they did in this match. They like they they reminded us of SummerSlam, and then they gave us you know the most traditional wrestling story storyline of all. You know the the underdog triumphs, and then they just turned it on its head. Uh, it was it was just uh, you know I can't uh, you can you can pick you can pick it you know what things you you know minor things you know quibbles about the about the show all day long, but the the guys who were behind it from the writing and you know just the creative side in general I thought just just had had a WrestleMania night you know I mean they they did a great job. Uh, you and your partner Rosenberg on the GP podcast covered a lot of WrestleMania, so people can listen to the GP podcast and 
it's great stuff there. So, I, But I want to ask you a few things you guys didn't cover. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is if they're really going to uh, to pull the split between Lana and Rusev, where do you think both of those characters go next? Like, I still hear that Lana's really considered you know, a star in the business from, from Vince loves her. And I know they love Rusev. Like where, where do you see those two if they go apart? Uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to say there's the obvious thing for, for, you know, just from like wrestling history, from a wrestling history point of view, the obvious thing is to turn Rusev into a, into a baby face and have him feud with Lana, have her get some other guy who, who, you know, but I don't know really where you go beyond that. I mean, she's, I agree that she's really, really gifted. Um, I, you know, the other thing is that they're, they're in a very serious relationship with each other in real life. So right. it's hard, it's hard to imagine one, the Lana disappearing, although maybe she just wants to pursue, you know, her acting career or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's, there are an infinite number of ways you can go. It's just a very weird storyline because they, this is this is a story. I'm, I'm actually working on a piece um, for Grantland about ang- about characters, you know, gimmicks that should not have worked, but, but that did. And this is one of them. This is what inspired it, because there's there's no reason why this like totally retro gimmick should have gone over as well as it did. It just kind of caught fire just enough, and WWE was committed to it, and and, and it really worked. I mean. I joked on the podcast months ago that the best way to modernize it would be to just turn him into like, like, you know, New York Euro trash and put him in track suits. You know, I mean, that would, that would at least like, that would at least spice it up for a little while. Um, and I also said it would be great if, I mean, Lana, I know Lana trained at least briefly as a wrestler, I'm pretty sure. So like, you know, there, I guess there's that future for her. I thought it would be great if she, I would just imagine the moment of her coming to the ring and tearing off her, her, um, like mini skirt suit uh, combo and revealing like a spandex mini skirt suit combo underneath. I mean, that would I think everybody would just go nuts. But um, yeah. but but it's really it's hard to imagine. I mean, I think Rusev's path is pretty straightforward. I mean, is is more straightforward in that he's he actually does have the most like Daniel Bryan style like babyface story in real life. I mean, he moved here with nothing and slept in his car outside of like outside of a wrestling school just because this is all he ever wanted to do in life. And uh, and you know, his character, despite being kind of loudly anti-American, is not particularly heelish. I mean, he doesn't cheat until, he didn't really cheat at all until the Cena feud, and and uh, he's a pure athlete that everybody just gets off on watching. So I think that he's going to be, he's going to be okay. It's, uh, it'll it'll be interesting to see if they, how they carry off the, the, the end of their relationship. But you know what, people love him so much, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see, you know, a macho Elizabeth style in ring wedding for them, like right. you know, two years from now or yeah. something. It, it could it could be great. I think they could. I think Lana has the potential to be sort of like a modern day sensational Sherry too, to some degree. She's such a hateable heel, and yeah. she's really good. I, I could see. I could. I could get into seeing her try to elevate someone else and and seeing how it might work. But I don't know. That's pretty interesting. Another thing, I thought it was so smart before WrestleMania, and then someone had to let me down and say everyone was saying this already, but. My idea going into WrestleMania was like, well, if Lesnar's back and they want to keep the title on him and he needs to only wrestle a few times, let's put the other two titles on Cena and um, Daniel Bryan, make them super important and just run pay-per-views around those belts. I was like, have my chest out like as a super uh, wrestling thinker. And my one friend's like, you know, everyone's talking about that on the Internet, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm yeah, like, I mean, oh, I think shit. that was... <laughs> 
That was, I mean, that was exactly the plan. And that plan was, I think, hatched when they were leaning towards leaving the belt on Lesnar. So, I mean, the, uh, but, but I think it's an absolutely brilliant idea. I mean, I wrote this week that it does this weird thing where it elevates Brian just enough that you like, that fans are content that he is important to the company. Yeah. Um, and it, and it, and it demotes Cena just enough that those same fans don't have to freak out that he's going to be in every championship match from now on. So it, it has this sort of great, like meet in the middle, um, uh, outcome, which I, which I, I think is really cool. And also like, you know, Daniel Bryan looks so right with that belt on. It's sort of insane that, that, you know, I mean, I, I love him to death. I love to see him in the main event. But the storyline of, of, you know, the fans putting him in there, of him defying odds, I mean, that's, that gets stale at some point. And, and uh, you know, look back at wrestling history. I mean, the things that we remember most fondly are not necessarily the championship matches. And to insist that the things that we, that we like the best be in that situation now, you know, be in that spot is just, it's unnecessary, I think. You know, I, I think I told you what a huge, you know, WrestleMania three is the ultimate day of wrestling for me. It came in the perfect time in my life. Uh, the Steamboat Savage feud was something that at the time, I mean, I thought Savage almost killed the guy. You know, was totally into it, and, and Steamboat winning the Intercontinental title at WrestleMania 3 was like the peak of my childhood. And then the opposite of that is only a few months later, unfortunately, he lost the belt right in front of me in Buffalo. I was uh, couldn't have been 30 feet away, and I cried on my dad's lap, literally, for a half an hour. Um, you know, totally ruined my, my month, probably maybe my year having to be there for that. It was very traumatic. Uh, but, um, I love that belt so much and it's, uh, beyond WrestleMania three. I mean, all the guy, the great people have held it. I'm so excited that it, people are excited about it meaning something again. And I mean, Bret Hart and, uh, David Boy Smith headlined a huge SummerSlam in front of a huge crowd, maybe under yeah. unique circumstances, but Regardless, they did it with that belt, and I'm all in for the idea of this belt, you know, headlining shows again. Yeah, actually, to, to the point that you made about, about Steamboat, um, I had a piece that I was writing in the, in the, for the build-up to WrestleMania that I ended up trashing when Brock Lesnar went on SportsCenter, um, but, and it was going to be a sidebar, and then it was just too long to be a sidebar, but it'll, it'll, you know, it'll reappear at some point, but it was about the 10, it was the 10 most insufferable babyface championship runs in WWE history. And because, you know, that with the, with the thought that like, if that, if this was the time for Roman Reigns, he was going to join the list. Um, but, and you know, obviously he didn't win. So someday, someday that'll reappear. But one of the interesting things that, that I came across is there are some that are obvious that are just, you know, whatever, like nobody liked, nobody liked Diesel as champion, whatever. Right. But, but a lot of them that are like the worst reigns were, um, had some of the best builds to the championship, right? And then they get the title and they just don't, and WWE doesn't know what to do with them. And that's not always just a creative, like, it's not just a, a, a WWE's fault that they can't do it. It's just some guys are made to be, you know, some guys are made to be underdogs. The storyline is the climb, but they're not made to be long reigning champions. You know, I mean, Dusty Rhodes made an entire career out of the climb. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, at just the end of the day, you know, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat was just the, the whole that that was what he was great at. You know, and and you but you didn't necessarily want to see him just line up and fight every every mid level heel on the roster. Well, he never really got a chance, sort of, right? Because him and Vince got into a fight over a time off he was going to take in July when his wife had his baby, and Vince made him drop it after only two months. Yeah, um, so he never really had a chance. I think he only defended it on TV one time against Hercules Hernandez in Saturday Night's main event. That's I think that's correct. And he, yeah, but he never had it at a pay per view. 
So, yeah, no, I mean, but I just mean that, like, but there's just some. I told, no, I, I see yeah, what you you're, mean. you're yeah, totally no, right. But, but, but it's okay to like, it's okay to just treasure the climb and the and the the WrestleMania three match and and without having to just, you know, it's not it's not disqualified by the fact that like there wasn't a long reign. I mean, there's this isn't a real sport, you know. I mean, it's right. the story. The story is what matters, not like the not the record books. And maybe Daniel Bryan's win last year sort of be a uh, modern day version of that. Oh, yeah, really no, it's totally true. Yeah. Uh, I want to wrap up with you in a minute because I don't want to keep you too long because you're nice enough to give us this time. I know what a busy week you've had. You've already, this week, since Monday, you've already flown cross-country, did a podcast, wrote a column, uh, all this stuff. So kind of wrap up a little bit. But obviously we're all, and you, you guys talked this about this a little bit in your podcast, uh, CM Punk talked uh, famously about how WrestleMania sells WrestleMania, and I believe that to an extent, but I don't know if it sells it to the 100,000-plus level that they're hoping uh, to achieve next year <laughs> at AT&T Stadium at Jerry World. So it's obviously going to have to be a, a hands, all hands on deck, or they're going to have to do something beyond just showing up and saying WrestleMania is here to get that number. At least that's what I think. I don't know. The talk around around WrestleMania, and this is coming from <clears throat> people who are employed by WWE or very close to WWE, is I mean, it was sort of a joke, but not but a serious joke that like every legend who can walk is going to be on that card, right? Um, and whether or not that's in matches or what, but uh, I had somebody who is like very well placed, who is not not this is not based in reality, but was fantasy booking. John Cena versus Stone Cold Steve Austin, and like it's just just the fact that someone that like mattered enough that he didn't need to be fantasy booking, and he was right. So like like, it, like just the fact that people like that are thinking about it is crazy. Um, everybody, I mean, yeah, it's we're definitely going to see you know Undertaker versus Sting, assuming that you know health holds up for both those guys, and you know let's let's hope that it does. I mean, let's, that's that's what everybody's talking about, and you know Rock versus Brock, Brock Lesnar is what what people keep talking about too. Um, that being said, that's been penciled in. I think two out of the last yeah, three years as the main event, and, uh, and 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 didn't happen. So um, you know, it's not. It, it nothing's obviously nothing set in stone. You know, as they as as everybody loves to say that the wrestling phrase is card subject to change. Um, it always changes dramatically from one year to, from you know in the span of a year. But yeah, I mean, I have no doubt that they will try to cram everybody onto that roster. I mean, the the day after WrestleMania, I think, or maybe the day of, uh, the Bellas were challenging. Uh, who Trish Stratus and Lita to a match on Twitter? You know, who knows? I mean, I'm, su- I'm sure that was. I mean, that wasn't necessarily like a real storyline, but I mean, they're just the, the idea is just to open up the vault and get as many fans, collapsed fans, you know, from the '90s and early 2000s back as they possibly can. Everyone's gonna want Austin bad. You know what I mean? Real bad. Well, he's the one. I mean, he listen. He's he he's the one guy that could that could sell out the whole stadium. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, yep. it's it's Texas. It's gonna be. You know, it's that's that's why the you know the, the Undertaker. I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure they hatched the plan five years ago to just somehow let him hang on long enough to retire at 32. You um, know, and you know the the Hall of Fame is going to be like all Texas people too. I mean, it's just kind of they're just trying to they're just doing anything they can to get the local crowd out. Um, and Austin would be a part of that, but he's also a much bigger guy. Right. I mean, all all that I've heard is that he is. You know his his spine, his neck, whatever is messed up to the point that like he's one bad move away from from 
like catastrophically injuring himself. Yeah, that's a scary. It's part. kind of a Michael yeah. Irvin situation. And the thing is, and and you know, we saw Bret Hart have a match where he really didn't do anything, you know, against Vince McMahon. We we've seen this sort of thing before, but I think you know Austin would probably not want to do it if he had to half-ass it. And um, I mean, and the biggest problem is even as even if you could book it so well that you you could hardly even tell. Um, I, it's the Stone Cold Stunner is one of those moves that he that like would put him in serious jeopardy, right? So, right. Like I, I don't know. I don't know how you kind of avoid that. Right. Um, but I mean, I've I've stood next to Stone Cold uh, within the past year a couple times. I've shaken his hand. He's he looks to be in better shape than he was, you know, for like the latter half of his career. So, you know, if anybody can, like, magically make this comeback, I, it's got to be him. And you know what? He's so great at everything that the match would obviously be the number one thing. But, I mean, he's the the guy that can have value doing almost anything out there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's true. I just hope he doesn't yeah. take up writing because then I'll be out of a job. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Because he's killing us in podcasting. That's for sure. Jesus. Oh, he's he's the best. Yeah, he's he's the best. I mean, absolutely. I always I always joke. I mean, I love I love Jim Ross's podcast too. But it's amazing to me that between Jim Ross and Stone Cold, two guys whose careers are so intertwined, it's amazing that Stone Cold turned out to be the like the world's best broadcaster. And Jim Ross is actually his 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 gift is to do these one man shows that he does. So he's like he's the performer, and Stone Cold is the broadcaster. It's a total reversal of roles, but um, it's it's amazing. Those both those guys are just so talented. Yeah, and you're so right too. The, <laughs> the problem with the Ross podcast, which I like as well, is. First of all, this week it was 15 minutes of selling stuff before he got to even one word that wasn't selling. He just can't help himself but sell. And another thing is he can't help himself but to tell stories. So when he has an interview and he has a guest you want to hear, it's you're mostly hearing Jim Ross tell that guy's stories. Uh, and then hopefully he'll slow down a little bit to let the other guy say some stuff. Uh, yeah. But um, last thing I wanted to say before I let you go, because you've been hinting at this about how – uh, you thought um, the idea of moving Cena down a little bit uh, would be good for him, and, and I agree. I really hope that uh, – because you've been saying that you think that maybe the pendulum is, is, is coming around now for him uh, and the fans uh, to some degree. Because the one thing I've hated more than anything since I've been back is the, the Cena hate because, you know, as someone who loves the history of wrestling, his – you didn't want to go as f- almost as far as to say he's on the Mount Rushmore, but he is. I mean, he just is to have the run he had. And I hope that when he makes those historic uh, record-setting title runs eventually that everyone's sort of in on it. You know, that when he has the 16th or whatever the record is, I know I think he's one behind or whatever they say the record is. I hope that everyone's kind of with him by then because he deserves it because he, he's the one guy, too, of all the big guys who's kind of never, never left them. You know, he's always... Wrestling's always been really number one to him. Yeah, so oh, and, and it's true. I mean, I I have some people who. Okay, I'll, let me let me back up and say this: uh, if there's going to be a chance for Cena to turn, and we saw how much how awesome it was to have this pop culture moment of Brock Lesnar being on SportsCenter and Bill Simmons being on Raw, and it's just sort of like I felt like it legitimized wrestling fandom in a way that it hasn't it hasn't felt it hasn't felt like that in a while. Um, and I was saying over the weekend to, to a number of people that I think the next thing that's going to, you know, the, the next thing on that list is going to be Cena when he starts appearing in all these, like, really popular comedy films. He's got a couple under his belt. Apparently, Judd Apatow loves him to death and says he's going to put him in everything from now on. I mean, if Cena can get comedy nerd cred, that's enormous for wrestling fans, right? And for the wrestling industry in general. And I think that, in some ways, that will help 
that will help sort of soften the scene of hate. Um, but that's, I mean, I think I wrote this last week that even the people that are, that are saying they're changing Cena sucks, they don't hate Cena. They just like to be that to self identify as a Cena sucks, you know, person, um, as a sort of smart fan or a anti-establishment fan. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that there's going to be a lot of opportunity for Cena to, to, uh, sort of claim a little bit more of that, of, of, you know, that, that respect from people that hate him over the next year or so, um, and also, I think that with the movies coming out, it's going to be really clear to the to the to the hardcore fans that if he sticks around, it's because he he's choosing to. It's not because it's his only option. Right. Um, he could be the comedy, you know, he could be like the comedian version of The Rock, and uh, and he's choosing to still stay on the road 300 days a year. Um, I think that'll 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 go a lot to uh, to to sort of redeeming himself, if that's the right word, in the eyes of, you know, that whole Cena sucks uh, uh, contingent. Yeah, and of course, uh, I think, you know, if you look back at the last 12 years or whatever he's been in the company, he's probably been at 90% of the Raws, but he was filming Parks and Re- Recreation or something the night that I was at Raw in November, so of course I missed him, but... <laughs> uh, <laughs> The, uh, the Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling by David Shoemaker is one of the best books I've ever read about wrestling. You can find it on Amazon. It's, you know, Kindle edition. There's an iBooks edition. And, of course, you can go to bookstores to buy it if you do that kind of a thing. Uh, the Cheap Heat podcast is uh, on Grantland. It's once a week. It's in the top 20 right now in sports po- podcasts. Killing it. Uh, great show there for sure. And he writes every week for Grantland.com. Uh, and is uh, friends with the other kind of well, the star of Grantland right now is your boy Brian Curtis, huh? Like, yeah, my my uh, my runs. my longtime roommate, my uh, yeah. my my fellow uh, high school classmate. Um, yeah, we're I, I I like to say that I learned everything I know about writing just from like osmosis, being around him a whole lot. But um, but yeah, he's he's done some incredible stuff. I mean, I can't even keep up with everything he's done anymore. And when I see him, I just have to. I just have to like quickly Google his or like you know look at his author page to make yeah. sure I've read everything so I can compliment him sufficiently. Simmons is putting him over. Deitch is on uh, Twitter talking about Simmons putting him over, uh, and he was he was on really recently, and um, he basically said about you what you just said about him that oh no no he's the guy not me and you just said no no I'm the guy not him so tell your good buddies make a great tag team uh, at AKA the Mass Man on Twitter. And uh, that's everything, right? Anything else you want to throw out there? That's it, man. You did a great job. Thank you so much. I always love having you on. Appreciate the time on such a busy week. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. All right, we'll talk soon. All right, I want to thank Luke Wynn. And David Shoemaker for being on the podcast. Both of them are in the midst of uh, the busiest weeks of their year. And I appreciate both of them uh, for taking the time to be on the show this week. Don't forget you can uh, find this podcast and, well, most of our podcasts right now (laughs) on our website, www.sports-casters.com. I have some work to do to upload the third and fourth season. I have every episode from the fifth season back now. I was able to uh, find, find episode three and six or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what happened when I was uploading the show last week. Somehow the other ones disappeared. I don't know if we'll ever get an explanation as to why. 
I wasn't prompted to overwrite them or delete them. I just dragged the new one into the into the folder and they were all there while it was uploading. When it finished uploading, they all disappeared. <laughs> so yeah. if you, you know what I might have done wrong and can tell me how to make sure I never do it again, please, by all means, tell me. I was wondering if they got maybe accidentally dragged to a different folder, but I didn't see them anywhere. So I don't know. I'm at a loss. But anyway, you can find uh, this and most of our podcasts, including last week's with <laughs> Stuart Mandel, Ryan Lambert, and Mike Johnson at www.sports-casters.com. We'll have them all restored this week. Uh, tomorrow, I will get most of them up or the next day. But it's my job for the week. Uh, Don was quick about his work. He was in charge of one and two. Yeah, arch- shout out to archive.org. They don't, yeah. I don't know who runs that thing, but... Thank you. The Internet Archive there. Yeah. I was able to find all the early episodes that we had at a different house. So. Yeah, so we have everything early up, and I'll get everything laid up. And Season 5 is up. And some of Season 4 as well. So anything in the last yeah. four or five months is there. Yeah, it'd be weird if someone was like, oh, damn it, I wanted to watch, listen to this season. But people do you know, tweet me about guests. We had this person, and I'll tell them, and sure, then they'll right. go and listen to it. And, and we want them there for you know the completeness of it, I think. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, so they'll be back. You can tweet us at sports underscore casters or at Don Lake Sports. Email us uh, sportscasters at gmail.com. I also want to start doing some blogs again on Tumblr. We have two blogs set up. We haven't done much with them yet. I think absolutely like during the, the lottery this year, we should both be doing blogs. Uh, yeah, I've done uh, during the draft. I, mean, we I just used need to do to... it during the NFL draft. The only thing that sucks about that from my perspective this year is my team won't be in it. Yeah, they're not going to pick at all. Yeah, so. If we need to. Do them now and again, because right now we're not doing them at all. Right. We need to get back to a now and again pace. Nice. Uh, we tried doing them all the time, and it's just kind of too much work. Yeah. And uh, you know what sucks about them the most is there's no one to edit them. You know, you sit there for an <laughs> hour writing it, and the last thing you want to do is go over and find out when you wrote six instead of socks. You know, and yeah. if you don't do that, the first thing you get is a tweet saying, you wrote six instead of socks. <laughs> so yeah. that really discourages me from wanting to ever do them. Yeah, that's the internet for you. Yeah. All right, I'll do my last thing first because it's short and sweet. About the draft, uh, the NHL draft, I'm not going to talk about tanking again. Don't worry about it. Um, there's no reason. Wait, can I say something about tanking real quick? Yes. Buffalo got a lot of heat this week for cheering against their team. Yes. It's kind of stupid. It's a little overblown. I'm all about the tank, but if you really don't want them to win, kind of just sit there politely or don't go at all. You know what? I don't mind going into the building and like very audibly cheering against them makes us all look kind of bad. Yeah, I... uh... I would never be the guy to wear my Sabres jersey with an uh, Arizona, I almost said Cardinals, Coyotes. Yeah, you really logo want some attention if you're doing that chest. kind of stuff. And I get, I get the game when it, it was an overtime game, right? Yes. Okay. Arizona wins that game in overtime. I almost get an outburst a little bit in overtime. Like, yes. Like, just like some visceral, natural reaction because that's what you want. I and I actually pointed it out to Michelle when the Coyotes scored the my wife when the Coyotes scored the first goal of the game, I had to rewind because they showed like the behind the net view 
And you could see some. This is gonna be visual on a podcast, but you could see some people go like, "Yeah, oh, oh like they didn't really want to like raise their hands." Yeah, they for shouldn't. It. So, I'm okay with like the visceral reactions, the yelling and cheering. It is a little weird. Like, I guess if you're a season ticket holder, you you've got the tickets already. But- now on Wednesday they're gonna play against Toronto, and there's this thing going around Twitter about how Sabres fans should never cheer for the Leafs. Stop. You're telling me next year, if on the last game of the season, the Leafs need to beat the Capitals and the Sabres make the playoffs, <laughs> right, right. you're not going to cheer for the yeah, Leafs that day? That's a Fuck ridiculous. off. Yeah, that's a ridiculous of course, there's scenarios where you want the Leafs to, be, to beat a team. There might even be scenarios where you might want the Leafs to beat the Sabres, and this is that scenario. Right. When it could be the difference between a generational player or another one of the Strom brothers. Or and whoever it, the pick would be if you don't get and the it. Argument here, so give me a break. We are getting back into tanking a little yeah, bit. But, yeah. I mean, the argument here is you're not cheering against the Sabres. You're cheering for the future of the team. Of course you are. And that's so, the part that's kind of So like, go ahead with your original. All right. My thing is real simple. Uh, the NBA kind of classically gets picked on. Uh, the conspiracy theorists like to come out and talk about the frozen envelope and the Patrick Ewing draft. And... Uh, the NHL does this real bizarre system where they just have some guy come out and hold signs and whatever. Well, because it's been predetermined. Right. They've already had the audited right. thing. Yeah. And I don't believe it is a fix. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. No chance. Just There's no it. chance it is. Here's how you do it. The New York State Lotto or the Powerball or any of these places that give millions and millions and millions of dollars away every day show the entire process on TV. The reason you can't do that is because you wouldn't be able to have the long, drawn-out process. Because essentially right now the lottery is only for one yeah, pick. Yeah, yeah. So if you do it that way, but, you're, op- you're you, one ball comes up, that's who has the pick, and it, the show's over. Well, the way I would do it is... Just record that, maybe. Sure. I don't know. Um, but if the lotto can do it live, I don't see why... And as far as the long, drawn-out process goes, I would get that more if it was the NFL... Uh, because they're all about pomp and circumstance. The NHL, this is going to be like a halftime That's true show. in the United so States, not, but not in Canada. This will be live okay. on TSN. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Or Sportsnet. And Sports, excuse me, Sportsnet now. And Sportsnet has played big dollars for that contract there, and they want this show. And if, they want it to be a half an hour, not one minute. If one I second. were going to do it, here's how I would do it. Um, I know when they did the lottery after the uh, lockout, the Crosby lottery. Mm-hmm. Uh, they gave all these teams like these random numbers, and there was enough random numbers where if their random number came up, uh, they won the pick. Like everyone had a certain amount mm-hmm. of chances at this. Give everyone random numbers and somehow do it in such a way that, like, as you call off one number at a time, there's like teams that just get eliminated from this. So, like, if you're watching, like, anyone that's been a part of a raffle or something knows that, like, most of the numbers at the beginning are the but same. The problem is it's not proportionate. No, I the know, way the lotto is set up, they can only have one ball come up for the winner. No, but what I'm saying is you give – say the Sabres have like uh, – what's the chance? 20%. So they get 20 different numbers. Uh-huh. The other team gets – so there's a thousand or 100 numbers given out. Well, I guess you need more than that. That's only three balls. But you give them some string of numbers that's long and gives them the 20% chance. So then you pop up one ball for the first number, and then and you publish this list beforehand. So Sabres fans like are essentially holding their like raffle ticket. If you've ever been like at a auction or a uh, like grad party or something with fifty fifty tickets, like that's how I think they should do it because you could still have a little bit of that slow buildup. Um, 
But if we, anyone has any idea what he's talking about, please tweet us <laughs> at sports underscore gas. It'd be the, it'd be like a, like they do the lottery where you have one ball come out at a time, uh-huh. and the Sabers would have numbers assigned to them. And if those are the numbers that came up in that sequence, then the Sabers win or whoever, whatever team wins. I think that's essentially what they did. They just oh, did it so you want like a twenty-digit number to come out one at a time. Six would be good, I think. Like a six-digit number. So how many is that? That's a hundred thousand balls, uh, or it might be almost a million balls, or a million different numbers. That's a lot to publish. So maybe you do I like think five they should just do it in the back, come out, reveal it the way they reveal it, and if you're a big enough fucking loser that's- to think <laughs> that the league is somehow deking the agency that they have hired to ensure the integrity of the league right you can go die somewhere yeah i guess maybe you just do it the way they are. I, the way they do it now is stupid because i think so far it's worked out where a team hasn't fallen more than like four spots or something like they've or a team hasn't gone up more than a few spots like i think like a fourth maybe won the pick obviously they're going to put themselves in a huge pickle but if like a team from a big market cashes in a one percent chance to win this lottery right and like Okay, the first pick is or number the sixteenth overall pick is whoever Boston, the last place team to miss it or whatever, and the next place team is uh, not the team it should be. Well, it's like oh shit. Well, we know who won. I guess you don't have to do the next fourteen cards. It's they set themselves. It's a weird way to do it when once it happens, everyone would know what happened. They're the morons. They're <laughs> morons. They're fucking idiots. The, it's garage league, right? Yeah. But I don't think they're all outright cheating. I don't think so either. But I think if Toronto wins, someone's going to say they wanted them Toronto. If, right. Even if though Arizona they have wins, the third best odds. Right. If Arizona right. wins, they're going to say they're trying to save Arizona. Right. Like, of course. If Buffalo wins, I, I think Buffalo's the only team you can make the argument that they wouldn't want to win because our market kills anyway. But so if Buffalo doesn't win, Buffalo fans are going to be like, oh, we don't win anything. They didn't want us to win. Or Liga's always trying to, ah, uh, Gary Batman. And uh, hopefully we're in a position where we don't need to win. Yes, I agree. All right, so that's that's my take on the draft. Just somehow, the system they have in place stinks. I mean, I guess I I don't. You're right. I believe, You're right about it's that. It's just anticlimactic. I think they can make it this real cool thing, and they just have some guy come out holding cards. All right, uh, I agree with you about that. It's stupid. They do a lot of stupid things. Jeez, <laughs> uh, I've been ranting and screaming and grouchy this whole podcast. So. I'll keep it short, and I'll say something positive. I really love the show Better Call Saul. Yeah. If you were a fan of Breaking Bad, get in on this if you're not in already. It's very much from that world. It feels like an episode of Breaking Bad. Uh, the storytelling is similar, similar. A lot of the pieces are similar. Uh, the characters on the screen are are the same in a lot of uh, uh, cases. Uh, yeah. It's great. There was a point in the season where I thought, Oh God. (laughs) And then the next episode was like, okay. I think the first and second one were all right. And then like the third and fourth one is like, ah, they're kind of losing me. And then they've just went on a run since then where I just love the show. I think it's awesome. I think they picked the right character to kind of build off of. They're telling a great story. Uh, the storytelling is good. Like I said, it's very much from that world, and it feels like uh, another chance to be a part of Breaking Bad. And if you love Breaking Bad, and so many people did, uh, get in on this. It's great. Yeah, and it, I I would say most people, I, I would say the most likable character maybe on Breaking Bad was maybe Jesse. 
But I would say the next two might be the main characters so far in season one of Better Call Saul, and that's Saul and Mike. Mike. Sure. I, we're super likable, cool characters. And getting to know Mike's story is almost yeah. just as good as getting to know Saul's. Oh, absolutely. Who's not even named Saul yet, and we no. only have one episode of season one left. Right. They've he's The Saul Goodman thing comes up, but it comes up in an episode in a flashback, so he's not even going by that name yet. So. I, I totally agree, and I talked a little bit off the air with or before we came on. I love that networks, like, in a lot of ways, these are better than movies because the networks trust, like, networks like AMC and HBO, they trust these show writers to, enough to allow them to, to have a slow build a little bit with some of this stuff. So, yeah, I totally agree. If you're not watching a drama on TV, you're, you're probably missing something pretty good. Bye. 